1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. Then Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Title of my message today is Godlessness versus Godliness. Godlessness versus godless, Godliness. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Atheism is such a depressing philosophical worldview. Its life prospect is ultimately meaningless, purposeless, hopeless, and futureless. After all, if we're just a, a random collection of chemicals that came about by a cosmic accident, and even if those chemicals somehow or other evolved into a higher form of life with intelligence, should we believe that that would give us a purpose for life and something beyond this present life? Sadly, atheism leaves a man with no real point to life and no, certainly no hope of a future life beyond here. Bill Nye, who's called the, the science guy in America, he sums it all up with this philosophical statement. And that is, when you're dead, you're done. Could you imagine that? When you're dead, you're done. In other words, everything you have lived for and worked for and hoped for and believed in is gone forever. You will never ever remember anything about it ever again or those that you lived among. Those who remember you, whenever they die, also they will have no memory of anything or anyone. And eventually all will die and there will be no memory of anything. Can you imagine that? And so that everything that this world has accomplished, everything that man has accomplished will be gone forever and there'll not even be a memory of it. What a depressing prospect that is. Buddhism is no better. You know, the highest goal, the highest aim for Buddhists is nirvana. Nirvana, which is the total annihilation of self. Nirvana, will say, is the only thing that will stop the endless reincarnation of people again and again and again and again. With all of the suffering that goes along with that and all the karma that goes along with that, the only thing that will stop that is nirvana and that is the absolutely non-existence of our being. What an awful prospect that is also. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, the word fill here needs a little bit of clarification. In the Hebrew, it's nabal, N-A-B-A-L. And it's not referring to intellect at all. You know, when the Bible calls somebody a fill, it's not talking about somebody who's deficient in intellect. You know, somebody who's, you know, low-grade intellect. Not talking about that at all. A man may have a brilliant intellect, and as far as God's concerned, he's an absolute fool. It actually means morally perverse. Morally perverse. You remember the story in 1 Samuel chapter 25 of the beautiful and wise Abigail 
who is married to a horrible husband, and he really was. The Bible says that Nabal, that was his name, says he was a wicked and he was a harsh, evil man. And how that King David, who had been anointed king, but he was a king without a coronation because Saul, whom God had rejected from being king, was still holding on to the throne. And so that meant that David, who, who Saul was trying to kill, actually, he had to go into hiding. And so he had about 600 soldiers with him, mighty men, people who were warriors. And he was hiding in caves and dens. And then at one place where he was, it was near the area where a very, very rich man called Nabal, who had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and a lot of land. He was extremely wealthy. And because David's men were there near where his shepherds were and where his sheep was and his flocks was, then they were able to protect them so that bandits or robbers couldn't steal anything or kill anyone. And then it came time for a feast, a feast time. And David sent 10 of his young men to go to see Nabal, knowing he was a very wealthy rich man, had lots of flocks, and says, look, give us whatever you can. We want to hold a feast, probably a feast unto the Lord. Give us whatever you can for the feast. And that man was so rude and obnoxious and despicable and he treated those 10 young men awful and he just completely and utterly disrespected David. It was terrible. And so when the word got back to David, when the young man reported that, he was livid. And he, 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 he told 400 of his men to, to saddle up because they were going to go and they were going to kill Nabal and every male member of his family were going to wipe them out. And Abigail heard of this. And so she got some provisions and five sheep and some stuff and got her donkeys and went out to meet David. And she pleaded with him. She says, David, my husband's a scoundrel. That's what she said. He's a scoundrel. He's an awful man. And he's a godless man. Why would you kill him and, and besmirch your good name? You know, she's very clever. You know, she says, don't, don't do this. Don't ruin your reputation over such a, a man as this. And she said, you know, he, he's, he's Nabal by name. He's a fool by name. And he's a fool by nature. He's a very foolish man. And David listened to her. And he did not go and kill Nabal. But actually God struck him down 10 days later. And Nabal became David's wife. And so whenever Psalm 14 and 1 talks about a fool here, it's talking about a godless person. It's talking about someone who had no time for God or the things of God or the people of God. They were morally perverse in that sense. A fool is someone who does not and will not believe in God, not because it's intellectually impossible, but because they choose, because they're morally perverse, they choose not to believe in God. Now that means atheism is a moral problem it's not an intellectual problem. It really isn't. It's a problem of the heart, not of the head. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. That's why it goes on to say in verse 1, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. Now in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, he uses the word anathema to denote something that is accursed. If it's accursed, it is anathema. It's an Aramaic word that he used. And in 1 Corinthians 12 and 3, he says, if anyone preaches any other gospel, even if an angel comes, preaches any other gospel, then I have preached unto you, which is a pure gospel. He says, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. 
Very strong indeed. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And in 1 Corinthians 12, whenever he's teaching about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the Corinthian church, he says something that also needs just a little bit of explaining. Because he says, no man by the Spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. And no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God. No man by the Spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. You see, the Jews, many of the Jews in those days, they would call Jesus accursed. And the priests sometimes in the temple would ask God, they would pray to God to curse Jesus. And the pagans sometimes would try to get Christians to denounce the Lord Jesus and get them to curse him. And so Paul is saying, no one by the Holy Spirit can do that. If somebody does that, you can be sure it's not by the Spirit of God. No matter how religious they are, even if they're priests doing that, it's not of God. That's what he's warning them about. So, anything that is irreverent, unholy, ungodly, which is against God, disbelieves in God, denies God, misrepresents God, is anathema, is accursed. And so Psalm 14, 1, atheism, by definition, is accursed. It's anathema. All who deny the reality of God or the revelation of God is anathema. Atheists say that it's unscientific to believe in God, that it's unintellectual, Indeed, that it's unintelligent. It's a denial of free, free thinking. If you believe in God, you're deluded. It's delusional. That's what they say. Somehow to believe in God, they say you've parked your brains and you've come to believe in some superstitious nonsense. But in doing so, they're denying something. They're denying that we have a spirit, that we're just a mind and a body. But we have a spirit. In fact, we are spirit and we live in the body and we have a mind. And the spirit is what makes us different than any other life on earth, any other animal on earth. It's the spirit in us that makes us different. We have a spirit, that indefinable but extraordinary thing that separates us from all other creatures on earth. But atheism... And evolution cannot and will not accept that we are spirit. Because to do that, you have to bring God into the equation. You have to have faith to believe. And that's something you see that's unquantifiable, it's immeasurable, can't be put under a test tube or under a microscope, it's not scientifically observable. And to accept that, then you'd have to believe by faith. And once God becomes introduced to the equation, then we become accountable and we become answerable for our very existence in this life. And that will never, ever do for the atheist. As an example of that, let me quote the arch-atheist Richard Dawkins. Now, you know when I say atheist, a theist Theos is God. A theist is someone who believes in God. The little prefix A in front of that, A theist, A means none or no. So it's someone who has no belief in God, a non-believer in God. 
Richard Dawkins is an atheist, but he's more than that. He's an anti-theist. It's not that he just doesn't believe in God, but he doesn't want you to believe in God. And he's gone out of his way through his talks and his books and YouTube and the media. He's gone out of his way to try to get as many people as possible not to believe in God because he's anti-God. He really, truly is. He despises God. It's not that he just doesn't believe in God. He despises God. He's morally perverse when it comes to God. In a discussion talking about the difference between spontaneous generation and creation, here's what he says, and I'll quote. Superficially, the obvious alternative to chance is an intelligent designer. I'm afraid I shall give God very short shrift. As an explanation of organized complexity, he simply will not do. Now think of that for a moment. As an explanation of organized complexity, because even the most vehement atheist will have to and does admit that this world is highly complex and it's highly organized. There is no denial of that. The only difference is they say that that came about by random chance, by spontaneous generation, by random chance. It just happened. There was no God. There was no intelligence behind it. There was no purpose to it. There was no meaning for it. It was just fortuitous. It was just good luck that it happened. That's what they believe. In other words, when it comes to God, like the scribes and the Pharisees in the New Testament when it came to Jesus, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees said about Jesus. In other words, <laughs> he, as a Jewish Messiah, he simply will not do. As God, Docking says, he simply will not do. As God who created, he will not do. Another one who is equally determined to give God short shrift is Harvard scientist George Wald, winner of the 1967 Nobel Prize for Physiology. Now here is an exceptionally clever man. Here's a man of very high intelligence. But this proves, you see, that in Psalm 14 and 1, when it talks about a fool, it's not talking about intelligence. This, this man has got intelligence in buckets. I mean, he really has but he's a fool. As far as God's concerned, he's an absolute fool. Listen to what he says. When it comes to the origin of life on earth, there are only two possibilities. And there can only be two possibilities. He said either creation or spontaneous generation. In other words, everything just spontaneously by itself just generated. Nobody did anything. There is no God. It just happened. Just spontaneously just happened. So he says, there's only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. Then he says, spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. But that leads to only other one conclusion, that of supernatural creation. <laughs> and then he said, but we cannot accept that. Therefore, and this, this is unbelievable, for, for such a clever, clever, intelligent, logical thinking man, listen to what he says. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life rose spontaneously by chance. Can you imagine that? Listen to what he's just said. He says, I know that spontaneous generation is impossible. I know it's been disproved 100 years ago. I know that any right thinking person would not believe that because it's just impossible. But... 
We choose to believe that rather than to believe God as a creator. <laughs> you see, it's a question of the heart, not of the head. It's not to do with intelligence. It's to do with the perverseness of the heart. Professor Brian Cox, physicist, the, the smiling, handsome young physicist who's the darling of the BBC at the moment. He serves as professor of particle physics, the School of Physics and Astronomy, the University of Manchester. Recently, I was watching a program where he was uh, talking about the second law of thermodynamics. Now, that's a very complex thing, but to put it down to its simplest term as he did, he says basically this, everything, anything left by itself will tend to go from order to disorder, from order to disorder. And we see that every single day of our lives. Iron turns to rust, wood rots, flowers fade, our bodies grow old, they become weak, we die, and we decay. That's the second law of thermodynamics. It happens, and then he says, but because this is a universal law, then it affects the cosmos. So he says stars die, and they do. In fact, he says our star, which is our sun, one day in a billion years from now, it will die also. But before it dies, and in the process of dying, it will blow up. It will enlarge itself. It will bloat up to it becomes a red giant. And even though we're 93 million miles away from the sun, it will envelop the whole earth. And all will be left of the earth and humanity will just be a burnt out rock spinning around space. <laughs> That's some prospect, isn't it? Then he says, it's even worse, then he says that every star will do the same. Eventually, there'll only be one star left, and even that star, it will burn out its fuel, and it will die, and then there will be nothing. The whole universe will be black, dark, empty, void, nothing. You see, that's, that's the mindset of someone who does not believe in God. That's the mindset of an atheist or even an agnostic, maybe he is, of someone who will not believe in the intervention of Almighty God. But you see, we believe in the intervention of God. We really do. Listen to this. I love this. John in Revelation 21, listen to what he said. Now I saw, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But he says when it passed away, it wasn't that there was nothing, because he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse 5, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Behold, I make all things new. God is not going to allow this world and this universe just to become extinct. He's not going to allow that there will be no light left, not at all, because God will intervene and he'll make all things new, the Bible says. You see, for the Christian, there is a distinct advantage. Even though we may not know everything our future holds, but we know who holds our future. And that, my friend, makes all the difference in the world. In 1 Timothy 4 and 8, the very first verse we read, for bodily exercise profits a little, no doubt about that, cannot argue against that. In fact, probably all of us, including this preacher, should do a little more of that. 
and it will profit somewhat to our human bodies. It sure will. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. What a difference in the mindset of the believer than the atheist. What a difference. We believe there's a promise in this life and in the life to come. It's not going to be endless nothingness, purposelessness, meaninglessness. No, there's going to be reason and purpose. Life for us is not a mystery tour. We're not groping in the dark. We're not aimless. We're not drifting. We're not counting on luck or happenstance. No, we have a purpose. We have direction. We're on a journey. We have believe in God as control of our lives. We believe that his will is being accomplished in us and through us. See, the Christian life is a life that's lived for the glory of God. That's what godliness means. Living a life for the glory of God. Exalting and honoring God in our lives. It's full of meaning. It's full of purpose. It will never end. Your life will never, ever end end. Everyone's life will never end. You'll either be in heaven or you'll be in hell, but it will never end. You will live forever. It's full of meaning and purpose. All eternity awaits the believer for God to fulfill all of his promise and all of the potential he's given us. All eternity awaits us to fulfill that in our lives. That gives us hope. That's a future that's worth looking forward to. Godliness is profitable unto all things. No better life to live than a life to live for God. Really isn't. Godlessness is a busted flush. It's a beaten docket. Without God, life is ultimately meaningless. Even the atheist says that. It's meaningless. Life has no real meaning. When you're dead, you're done. That's it. Had no real meaning, no purpose. Without eternity, what rhyme or reason is there in time? What is the point of being here without eternity ahead? <laughs> if the point is that we all just live for a few years and we all die and there's no remembrance of anyone or anything and that's it, you're dead, you're done, what is the point of that? There is no point in that. But God has a point. And God has a purpose. And that is we live forever in his presence in the place that he's preparing for us right now. And so we have a promise for the life that now is. Now a Christian man or woman may not be the wealthiest or the healthiest, but they know Christ as their savior and they know God as their father. And that is a treasure it's worth having. You see, some of the most godly men and women had no wealth, and some of them had very poor health, but they knew God. They knew Christ as their Savior. And that, for them, was their treasure. That meant more to them than anything. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. It really doesn't. Knowing him, knowing God as her father, that's what life truly is. Just this past week, a friend of mine told me 
But someone I work with, let me see, at least, at least 50 years ago. I remember 43 years ago when I gave my life to Christ, this person was an unbeliever. And he was the first person in my workplace that I told that I had become a believer just a couple of nights before. And he turned around to me and he said, David, fair play to you. That's good. And he looked around and he says, by the way, he says, my wife's a Christian. Now, I didn't know that. I'd worked with this man for years. That conversation never had arisen. I didn't know his wife was a believer. But just this week, after all of those years, his wife praying for him continually for over well over 50 years, just this week, she led him to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? So never ever give up on your loved ones. She prayed for over 50 years and then he came to Christ just this past week. I was thrilled when I heard that because I knew the guy. Hadn't seen him, by the way, in 43 years, but I knew him. Didn't know where he was living or dead, but now I know he is alive. <laughs> he truly is alive because he's found Christ. Now, if I was talking to him today, I can almost guarantee you one of the things he would say to me is say, David, do you know what? I wish I had done this years ago. I wish I hadn't wasted all those years without Christ in my life. And everybody that's got saved later on in life, that's what they, that's what they say. That's what I say. I wish I had stood for Christ years before I did. We have the promise for the life that now is and the life which is to come. We live in a world that demands immediate gratification, instant payback, a quick return. But if you live your life for God, you live your whole life for God. From the moment you get saved, you live your whole life for God, not just in time, but also for eternity because you realize that time is such a tiny, tiny part of eternity that you've got the rest of it and you'll be living for the Lord. So we're in for the long haul. Yes, there are dividends in this life. There's the promise of the life that now is. God gives us many, many, many blessings in this life, absolutely for sure. But not all the rewards that he will give that we'll get in this life. Not all the rewards will be awarded in this life. Many of them, it will be in eternity. Therefore, we should not be disappointed if we don't get a reward in this life that perhaps we've been looking for. Do not be disappointed because that will await you in the glory whenever you meet the Lord. See, we've got to keep looking at the big picture. Time and eternity. We have the promise for the life that now is and the life which is to come. It's not a better prospect. It's not a happier prospect. Can you imagine believing that you go through all of this life with all its problems, difficulties, all the rest of it, and it's ended, it's ended, that's it. There's nothing beyond this. Can you imagine living? I can't imagine that. But no matter how good this life is, the best for the believer has yet to come. We have got all eternity to enjoy being in his presence and serving him in eternity. I'm going to close with this. Jim Elliott, uh, who was martyred along with four other young men as missionaries to a tribe of Ecuadorian Indians. And after he had died and after his parents had received his belongings, uh, there was a diary. He kept a diary every day. 
And he wrote, he, wrote, he wrote many things in the diary which was tremendous, but one of the things he said has become almost immortal. I mean, this quotation is just wonderful. Here's what he said. He, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, in this mortal life, you cannot keep. You've got to give. Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you spend it for my sake, you'll find it. So in this life, we can't keep it. And we're going to die. So we can't keep this life. But our mortal life in heaven, you're never, ever going to lose that. You will never lose your mortal life in heaven. You'll have it for all eternity. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so without doubt today, the good news is we have the best of both worlds. We have the best life in this life and we'll certainly have the greatest life in the next life. God makes all things new, John said. Even our very souls you see, a man or a woman without Christ, their soul is dead in trespasses and sins. It has no relationship and connection with God. It's dead in trespasses and sins. And God wants it to become alive to him. And so he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come and to pay the price, the penalty for our sins that caused us to be dead in sins. He came and paid the price on that cross for us so that we could be born again of the Holy Spirit. If we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we will become born again of God's Spirit. Our spirit will become alive unto Him again. Our soul will become alive to God. And suddenly we'll know the Lord and we'll know God and we'll serve Him and love Him and live for Him and we'll become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Glory to God. And so we have the best and the promise of the life that now is and the life that which is to come. So we've got a choice today. I had a choice. You have a choice. Either to live in godlessness or live in godliness. I was living in godlessness for years. But when I received Christ, I started to live in godliness. And my life was completely, utterly transformed and changed. And yours can be too. But you've got to choose. You've got to choose how you're going to live. And to live a godly life, it's the best life here, and it'll be the best life there. But you've got to choose that. You've got to make that a choice. So will you do that today? If you're watching and listening to me and you don't know Christ as your Savior, why don't you put your life into his hands this very day and say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to live godly in this ungodly world I'm living in. I want to change. I want to be changed. I want to live for you. Will you do that today? Let me pray. And then Johnny will come and lead us in one last worship song. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow in your presence for these moments. We thank you for the life that you have imparted 
through your son to us. What a life it is. The best life. We thank you, Lord, that you never gave up on us. That your Holy Spirit came after us, sought us out, and wooed us and won us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give you thanks for that today. But Lord, if there's a man or a woman today watching and listening, and they don't know you, I pray that this day, even right now, that they will come before you in the simple manner and prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Forgive me for living in an ungodly way. Lord Jesus, save my eternal soul. Come into my life and make me a new creature in Christ. Let those old things pass away and let all things in my life become new. And help me and lead me into a life of godliness. I ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. 